This is the Innovation Engine podcast from Three Pillar Global, your home for conversations with industry leaders on all things digital transformation, platform modernization, and corporate innovation. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine podcast. I'm Scott Varho, Chief Evangelist for Three Pillar and your co-host for today's episode, joined by Bernie Dune, industry leader for the information services sector here at Three Pillar. And today we are thrilled to be speaking with Bloomberg Industry Group CEO Josh Eastright about putting customer experience innovation into practice. Josh is a more than 20-year veteran of Bloomberg, having started his career as an intern in 1999 and steadily progressing through the organization in the years since. He most previously served, or most recently served, as president of Bloomberg Government for two years, an internal startup at Bloomberg that was then merged with BNA and Bloomberg Law to form Bloomberg Industry Group. Josh, we're thrilled to have you. Welcome to the Innovation Engine. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So maybe we can get started by telling us a little bit about your business. We'd love to hear about the origin story of Bloomberg Industry Group, learn about the industry sectors and customers that you serve today. Yeah, like I said, a high level, the way to think about it is that we've got a collection of subscription businesses that serve the legal, the tax, and the government markets. And the common thread is people who need to track legal and regulatory information and developments. And we deliver it. Uh, over a website, it's a SaaS model. Um, but you know, our origin story, I think, is a little bit more interesting. Um, you know, I've, I always describe to people that we're we're a bit of a blended family. Uh, you know, we're a product of an acquisition, and then two internal startups at Bloomberg. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting organization. Uh, for some history, Bl- Bloomberg acquired BNA uh, back in 2011, uh, and at the time, we had two internal startups. We had a the Bloomberg Law startup, which was started up in New York. Uh, and then we had the Bloomberg government business, which was started down in Washington. Uh, and they were all operating independently. And shortly after the, the, the BNA acquisition, we brought together B-Law to leverage the synergies on legal research, uh, legal content, legal news. Uh, and then in 2017, we recognized there was an opportunity to get some leverage, too, with the Bloomberg government business, uh, particularly on news and some legislative and regulatory coverage. Uh, so we brought that business in. Um, so today. You know, the way to think about us is, you know, Bloomberg Industry Group is kind of like a holding company, uh, but we have three distinct businesses uh, as part of it. So we've got Bloomberg Law. Uh, we're very creative with our names, you're going you're gonna to realize here. <laughs> you know, we serve uh, both in-house attorneys at corporations uh, and lawyers at law firms. We've got Bloomberg Tax, uh, which, believe it or not, serves tax professionals uh, <laughs> and tax attorneys either. Uh, you know, in a big accounting firm or an accounting firm of any size or an internal tax department in a corporation. Hmm. And we've got Bloomberg Government, uh, which serves government affairs professionals, so lobbyists, members of Congress, uh, agency professionals, um, and government contracting professionals. So people that are uh, typically selling things to the government. You know, it, it sounds a little disparate, but actually there's a ton of leverage we get by having all these organizations together. So you, you think about something like news, right? Um, you think about like a, a bill that's got a lot of tax uh, implications going through Congress, right? Um, that applies to all three of our businesses. It also applies, by the way, to the Bloomberg Terminal. Uh, they're going to be interested in that kind of content. So what it, what it means is that we can hit that issue from multiple angles and service a whole bunch of different customers uh, by having these organizations together. 
Um, it also means, you know, if, if you're thinking about product development, we get to leverage learnings from all these products against mm. each other. So while they're, they're somewhat independent, um, you know, we do, we do leverage that. And a good example of that is, you know, we, we came out with a revised and, and enhanced onboarding tool for our Bloomberg Law product earlier this year. And, you know, we did a very, you know, very agile process. It was, you know, held together with bubblegum and duct tape at first. <laughs> uh, we kind of kind of learned and, and kind of kept iterating. And, and, and it got to a point where actually we're pretty happy with it. And now we're looking at rolling that similar structure out in the tax and the government product. Um, so we get we get some leverage on that front too. Well, what, just curious to push into that, like what does that onboarding um, experience do for for the for your service and for the clients? Yes, yeah, so the way I mean, if you think about our business, a lot of times our buyer is different than our end user, mm-hmm. right? So if you sell to a big law firm we might be dealing with someone centrally like a knowledge management professional or a librarian. You might be dealing with a practice group lead, um, you know, or a senior partner, but they then purchase on behalf of a whole bunch of other people, whether it's associates or other partners. So, you know, the person who we sell to is really excited and knows the product and understands it and maybe trialed it. Uh, but then a whole bunch of people get a login and it's sort of, okay, go, you know, go forth and prosper. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what we were doing before is we, we, you know, we had some very basic onboarding, but we didn't do enough to help understand what who that customer, who that user was, and what was important to them. So hmm. I, I wouldn't say that we've ridden into the, you know, we, we've created the wheel here uh, on onboarding, but we spent a lot of time thinking about, okay, what are the things we need to know about an attorney that helps us direct them to the most relevant content most quickly. Mm-hmm. So we'll ask them things like, you know, what practice groups, you know, what, 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 what areas of law do you practice? Uh, so are you a labor and employment attorney? Are you a tax attorney? Are you something else? So if you say you're labor and employment, okay, great. Now we know we can start specializing the content we push to you. Um, we know that we can maybe suggest to you, okay, would you like to sign up for one of our labor and employment newsletters? And we'll make that a one-click for you as opposed to making you go root through and find it. Mm-hmm. So by the time you get to the end of the process, you've got now a homepage that is more targeted to you. You might be subscribed to something that's more targeted to you. doesn't mean we've taken you through everything that the product has to offer, but you've got a much better launching off point. And we're finding a huge percentage of our customers are actually completing this, which has been really heartening. I mean, we were worried when we when we did this that everybody would sort of click the X out and, you know, I don't want to do this. Let me skip out of this. Hmm. Uh, actually, it's, you know, north of 70% of people are actually finishing. That's remarkable. The journey, which is great in product development, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and and one of the things I mean buried in there is is the is a critical insight that I'm constantly working with uh, clients on, especially in the B two B space. Is your buyer and your users are different people, and they may not even know each other. They probably have different agendas, um, and and digging into that user persona uh, to make sure they're getting value from the product that you're selling them. Um, a lot of people lose track of that. They really focus on on winning the deal and not not on increasing uh, value delivered uh, on the ground. So that's a that's a great insight, um, and and I applaud your success. So that's awesome. Um, so I, I'm actually interested then, you know, kind of looking at the the transition for Bloomberg, the journey from a traditional publisher really pushing content, talent, and expertise to digital product. I mean, you, you're using language that is very native to us, agile. Starting with an MVP um, and 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 working through 
the learnings and, and, and developing from there. I mean, that's, that's bread and butter for us. So what does that transition look like? Cause, cause I've worked with publishers before. They're not always agile. Um, there's usually a, a, a high bar for polish. Um, so I'm just, I'm just interested in the cultural shift and, and journey from your perspective. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we had a bit of a leg up to be honest with you, because, you know, we had you know, one, one were part of the Bloomberg family and Bloomberg obviously is all over this. Um, so we got a, a bunch of my colleagues, including myself, have have had product development careers at Bloomberg. So we got to leverage that knowledge. The other leg up that we had was Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government have been digital from the beginning um, and followed these, these this product development process from the beginning. So as they came into the organization, you know, they natively understood this. So that that really helped us. Um, so that, that's sort of thing one. I think thing two is though, I, I, I think actually the, you know, the, I, I get this question a lot. And, and I think the premise of the question is that, you know, it's actually harder for uh, a traditional company to do this, you know, like a, like a traditional publisher. And, and you know, certainly there's, there's definitely challenges, right? I mean, we, we had a huge amount of revenue tied up in print, right? And that, that's a real challenge. Um, and, and in publications and, and products that I would call print-like, um, and then even even just a few years ago, so definitely shifting the way that people think about their day to day, and the way they think about the product that they support, that was a challenge, no question. When you say people uh, you think, know, uh, Josh, is that people using the product, or that people internal internally? Oh, sorry, internally. Yes, internally. I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, you know, so we used to be organized um, very much around publications. So just take for take one of our more uh, more popular publications, the uh, say like the Daily Labor Report, uh, which has been around for decades and was a BNA publication. It literally had its own news reporting team. It had its own general manager. It had its own engineering allocation of resources. Uh, you know, it, it it had its own publishing and all that sort of stuff. So it was it sort of was this this complete silo in and of itself. Um, and then we had the Daily Tax Report which is another one of our products that's been around for decades and very, very popular with our customers, exact same setup, right? So that that was a real challenge because you had so much of similar work happening, but not being able to leverage each other to get the most out of it. So, you know, that that definitely was, um, that was something that we, we did very early on as we moved people around. Uh, and for example, we created a central news desk so instead of having a whole bunch of different news desks that support each publication, we created a central news desk. And the benefit of that is you really get people starting to work together because guess what? And when you're dealing with labor and employment issues, there's also tax issues, right? Because employees pay taxes and companies pay taxes. So now, now you can actually get a labor and employment reporter working with a tax reporter on a story and you can cover all the different angles of it and you get much better content for your customer. Well, uh, and, and I just want to pick on this for a second. I mean, what you're, what you're saying is you had certain advantages and certainly being, you know, digitally native um, helps a lot, right? Um, having aspects of your culture that is ready for that transition. But then you had real structural impediments to being able to create the kind of, you know, multilateral services that you're talking about. And so you have to have a you have to have a view of like what kind of an organization you're trying to become to remove the structural impediments and then get the humans to start behaving differently and collaborating differently. Um, I mean that that's what I'm hearing in your story. Do I have that right? You, you're spot on. You know, and the news is a is one example of that, but actually it happened 
all over our organization over the past couple of years. Um, you know, engineering, for example, a similar thing. Some of our other more um, analytical content organizations, same sort of thing. Really trying to break down those silos so people will naturally work together was really important. And you know, we made pretty dramatic changes to the way we were organized, um, but we we really see the benefit of it now a couple of years on. Uh, and we're, you know, I would argue we're we're ahead of where I thought we would be four years ago when we started this journey. So it's it's great to see. I, I think the other the other big change that was is just in people's outlook and the way they think about their job. You know, if you're if you're in a, um, you know, if, if you run a print business, the way the way your mind works is you have to get everything perfect once, and then you're done. <laughs> so true, right? Yep. If you're running a digital business, the product is never done, right? It's constantly, it's, it's always going, right? Uh, and you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And that is a bigger mindset shift than, than it sounds like. I mean, it sounds easy, you know, talking about it here with you guys, but it's a real challenge, task. right? Yeah. 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 I, I'd argue, though, that we had a leg up. It, it, you know, in, in another, I mean, I mentioned earlier that we had the leg up of, we had some some digital native businesses inside that helped. Uh, I think the other leg up, it, you know, is that you know we've got a few hundred absolutely world class experts that work in this company, whether they're former attorneys or whether they're former practitioners on the tax side or whether they're reporters that have been covering a beat for years and years and years. Those people being in house. You know, there is a real asset there when you think about technology, because right, technology is really great and it can answer all sorts of questions for you and all that sort of stuff. But you know, we deal in markets where you need that expertise, right? You can't you can't fake it. You know, and these people have created content for years, and you know, now we're thinking about how to change the form and the format of that content. But it's it, it, it's it's just if not more valuable because we can get it to the users more efficiently you know, and answer the questions more directly. So when, you know, when we build these tools and we're changing this, we've got these experts in-house that can help us think about, okay, well, that makes sense to a practitioner or that doesn't make sense to a practitioner. Um, so it's a, it was mm-hmm. another big leg up that I feel like we had. Although, I mean, that, that in my experience, that can cut both ways. You know, if, if that group sees technology as a way to enhance and amplify their impact, then you've got great allies that are going to give you awesome insights. If they see technology as a threat to the way that they imagine their work, right? Again, that, that mindset shift. If they're not able to make that mindset shift, then what you're trying to accomplish is, is a threat to this, this view of their work and how it's, how it's best uh, represented. Um, you know, and then they might look at the editorial process of old as a, as a, as a gold standard and, uh, and, and hold on, uh, you know, really tightly to that. So, you know, I'm, I'm actually curious how you brought that group through that process of of seeing technology as a as an amplifier, or or were they already there? Were they were they ripe for it, ready for it? Because you know, expertise in tax doesn't necessarily mean they're ready to leverage technology to get their message out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, there's there's never one answer on these things, mm-hmm. right? I think there. I, again, I'd say we were lucky in that we have a, a we had a huge number of people that were ready for that mm-hmm. and were energized and excited about uh, about it. You know, I mean, it's a, like any organization of large people, you have some people that weren't ready for it. And I, I think there it's a, it's a communications and a management challenge. And, uh, you know, you work to, you work to, to show them value. Um, you work to show them that this is actually going to make their life better. I mean, I'll give you a, like another good example on this. I mean, 
you know, in our news division, you know, we've started using technology to write stories, right? And it's not, we're not writing a deep investigative piece. We're not writing a highly researched legal analysis, but, you know, we can use technology to summarize a Supreme Court cert petition, you know, and that's something that we would have had humans doing historically, you know, so we've now trained a, a machine to do that. Now, I still need a human to edit that because we don't feel like the technology is where it needs to be to not have a human edit it. But I don't have a human kind of sitting there writing it from the from the beginning. The draft is, is yep. The draft is there, yeah. Yep. It's kind of out, all out of the out of the box. Um, the the with, what that does, I mean, you, again, you could take two perspectives. You could take the perspective, well, that's my job. Like, I don't want the machine to do it. But what it's actually allowed us to do is to add new beats to our coverage. Yeah. Mm. Right now, I can cover more things. I can cover more interesting things. So now that reporter who was stuck, you know, stuck doing summarizing something can right. cover a more interesting beat. So, right, the threat and the opportunity our- come together, right? Yeah. Yep. So you yeah. get the synergy between technology and talent and expertise, and you have more time unlocked to, to do more and accomplish more. Yeah. And I think to your question earlier, Scott, I think it's about showing people those examples like that. Mm-hmm that get, give them confidence that, okay, this is, a, this is the right journey. Net, net, they're gaining, not losing. Yep. Correct. Yep. Yeah, I, I think that's a, it's a, the, the culture of, of innovation and transition is, is, always, is a, to- a topic of mine that I, I love because there's, there's a lot of humans with a lot of emotions. Um, and, and so I think that's a really important, uh, important nuance to, to bring out. We talked about the power of, uh, the power of teams and getting cross-discipline teams working together to drive innovation but at the higher level, what is the fuel that drives the innovation engine at Bloomberg Industry Group? Like, how do you keep that innovation engine like finely tuned and keep everyone working towards the North Star? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I will say, I mean, I, I when I when I got here, I did bring in some leaders that I had worked with over the years, you know, to work with us. Um, and you know, having a good team around you really helps, right? People have done it before. People have seen it. Um, so that, that was, you know, kind of step number one was you know, getting a, getting a great team in place. You know, I'll say we, we talk about a publishing company, like they don't innovate. I, I actually think, you know, BNA is, you know, BNA is now 90 years old. Uh, you don't get to be 90 years old, you know, without innovating along the way. Right. And I, so I think we actually had an organization that had a history of innovation. I mean, you, you sort of think about, you know, they started off as a as a print company, and they they were the the first uh, subscription business to kind of really um, use drop shipments to get print product to customers very early in the morning. Right, that's an innovation, mm-hmm. right? And then you know, when the web came around, they figured out how to digitize everything and get it onto the web and put a ser- simple search layer on it. Right, so that we had we actually had that innovation. There. So I want I just want to be clear on that that. Um, you know, I think sometimes uh, legacy companies get knocked for not being innovative. I think there's a there's a rich history here we were we were able to build on. You know, I, I think the other thing that gives us a, a that fuels us is our direct sales and service model. Um, so about a third of our organization is in sales, customer service, uh, client support, and that group spends an enormous amount of time talking to our customers. Right, and listening to our customers, trying to understand what problems they've got, you know, and then that, that's on top of our product teams that are out there, right? 
and, and that's a that's a real rich history that not just we have, but Bloomberg does that as well, right? That, that Bloomberg's Salesforce is a is a secret weapon because they they spend tons and tons of time with their customers. They understand them really deeply, and we you know we we watch them work. I mean, when we were thinking about a recent um, you know a product that we're working on our tax side, we actually had people you know go visit customers and literally sit in a chair behind them and watch them work for hours on end to try mm-hmm. to look for where are their inefficiencies, where might we be able to help them. Oh, that's um, awesome. I love to hear that. Yeah. I, I've been, I was just explaining to someone what, that, what contextual inquiry is and it's that. Um, it's, you know, literally just sit with them, watch them. That's where you're going to find the high value opportunities. That's, that's, that's phenomenal. That's great. Yeah. And a lot of it, it's about having relationships with your customers, right? Where, where they'll let you do that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, but that's right. <laughs> yes. And tell you what's going on in their head at the same time, right? It's like, what are you, what are you doing and why? And what are you thinking about? No. Yep. So Josh, you also have a, a huge advantage with that 90 years of history with BNA information and data and insights, uh, correct? Like how do you, how do you leverage that to your advantage? Uh, as far as the technology goes or where a product goes, right? You're, you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I think the, the, the way to think about the, you know, the history and, and, the, and the leverage there is, you know, AI and machine learning and, you know, these are, these are they're, they're sort of buzzwords, right? And people like throwing them around, right? But, you know, you think about what machine learning actually is, right? A machine is learning. Someone has to help the machine learn. You know, when you've got a few hundred world-class experts in legal and tax and government issues in-house, you know, you, you think about ripping through a, a, a you know, uh, let's say like uh, we've, we've got a collection of more than a billion dockets, court dockets uh, in our in our databases, right? Hmm. Yeah, I could I could throw a machine at that and, and see what kind of insights come out. But man, it's a heck of a lot more efficient when I've got hundreds of attorneys working here mm-hmm. that can help to train the machine right. mm-hmm. and, and help the machine to understand that nuance. You know, and then you've got historical, you know, historical, whether it's historical news stories or historical legal analysis or tax analysis. Again, you can use all of that as when you're thinking about, you know, um, I'm trying to write, um, you know, we've got a machine that writes uh, summaries of state bills, for example, right? But we've got a collection of human written bill summaries over years and years and years. Right, I can compare the original bill to the bill summary, and I can use that to train the mm-hmm. machine. Okay, that's, right. um, that's the advantage that you know technology alone won't get you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what is quality? Right, uh, it'll it'll get me something. Now, now, what now is it good? Becomes a, a key piece of that. So, I'm actually interested in pushing. You've already given us a couple of hints into the the customer experience side of things, but I want to want to dive a little bit deeper. I've heard you say it's important to provide customers with answers, meaning actionable insights at their point of need, which is such a such a powerful statement I in love of that. itself. Yeah, um, can you elaborate on this um, and and share some examples? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I, I guess the you know, the, give you an example. Let's think about a lawyer, right? I mean, they spent a lot of time negotiating contracts, and a a, a consistent source of paranoia we hear from our customers when we talk to them is. You know, did it have I have I agreed to a clause like this before? Mm. Is this a standard provision that we you know we normally sign off on on our side? And what what we'd see them do when we watch them work is they'll have a you know a word document up that they're working on, and then they'll have maybe you know a SharePoint 
a SharePoint file with a bunch of old contracts on it. And then they'll, you know, maybe they'll have our product up, you know, in a web browser. And they're they're jumping between all these different tools to get their work done. Look, I mean, they, they get it done, right? But, you know, kind of the constant going back and forth as they're working on this contract. So, so instead of thinking about, you know, how do we add another search facet on our website, you know, to maybe search a little more granular, we, we, we took the attitude, let's flip it on its head. Why don't we ask them to give us the contract they're working on, mm. you know, upload it to us, and we'll run it against everything we've got. And we'll tell them what we know about that contract, right? We'll say, like, is there any sort of, you know, I'm sort of switching between contracts and maybe like a legal brief here, but mm-hmm. we have tools for both. But, you know, let's say you're talking about like a legal brief. You know, we can look at it and say, okay, well, these are all the cases that are cited in that, that legal brief. We found it. Here's the link to the cases. But by the way, we've also got, you know, an artificial intelligence tool called Points of Law that figures out, okay, what are, what are broad legal concepts and then what are cases that refer to that legal concept. Well, because these cases are cited, these are probably the points of law that are referenced in the in the brief. And these are other cases you might have missed that you want to cite. Hmm. Wow. You know, or you know, or if you're looking at a contract, you know, we've got already natively in our product the Edgar database, right? So all these all these publicly filed contracts. Well, we can compare your contract against a similar contract from a company in in your industry of your size of the type of contract. And does this look like one of those contracts? That's phenomenal. Wow. Yeah. So it's sort of, what it, what it does, I guess the, the whole point is it, it puts the customers working in Word and they're working with that document. So why swim upstream? Right? Point, put, put the information we have, put the intelligence we have right at the point of need in the Word document versus make them jump between multiple different platforms. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, we we met not too long ago with Bob Mesta, uh, Moesta. I don't know if you know him, um, but he's a, he's a big evangelist of the jobs to be done framework. Which, and he literally, I was just reading a quote from him yesterday about um, really really focusing on the point of struggle for your users and understanding that point richly and going right at that. Um, and it's, I, I think you just represented a great example of 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 mining for the point of struggle and then solving it at the struggle itself. Um, and providing a back a much richer uh, service than you would otherwise if you were just thinking about like, hey, you know, how else can we make? How about if they just upload the the this little bit of text and we we tell them what we think? You know, there's uh, you could you could be in any aspect of that, but you're really trying to point uh, go right into the pain point, which in order to find that pain point, you have to do those kinds of contextual inquiry that you were talking about earlier. Have your sales team sitting with trusted customers. Uh, who who are looking to you to like, hey, what can you do for me in this this space? Um, that's a uh, that's really that's really phenomenal. And I, I love. I hadn't heard that term "point of struggle" before. I like that one. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, I, it resonates a lot with me. I, I was going to bring that up as well, but I think you turn that 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 moment of struggle into an evolution of the customer experience, and you've given relevant information in a timely manner that makes it easy for them within the context of the job that they're trying to do. Right. They were trying to do something before that would be multiple tools, and you're working in Word. Uh, so anytime you can make the Word experience easier, I think is a win for for everyone. On that note, uh, you know, given your customer base and the industries you serve, you mentioned tax and accounting, law, government affairs, and government contracting. How how quick have you know users and and those industries been to adopt digital product experiences and 
And then maybe a related question, since we're coming out of the pandemic, did, did, do you see an acceleration of digital adoption in the pandemic and coming out of that? Yeah, I mean, I, it's a good question. I, you know, I think it, you know, in general, we, we serve customers whose own customers expect them to be right and perfect every time, right? I mean, you hire a lawyer, you hire an accountant, right? You, you, know, you as, the, as their customer, need them to be spot on and precise. Um, so that, that's sort of the mindset that our customer operates with. So they don't have a lot of, they don't have a lot of room for error. Um, so I think it's fair to say that, especially pre-pandemic, there, there was certainly a degree of caution in, in those industries um, and sticking with what they know in terms of products or workflows. Um, but I, I think the pandemic certainly has sped things up. And, and you know, to be clear, there, there's some really innovative organizations out there that have always been pushing the edge. But I, I'm, so I'm giving you a real generalization. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think you know some stuff that I've noticed changing. I think for you know for lawyers, I think um, you know a real notable change is a growing comfort with cloud technology. Mm. Uh, you know, you used to see law firms be very insistent on everything stays in my on you know my my own uh, my own metal my own uh, the the, <laughs> the security of the IT closet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which you know you, you try to explain the irony that the cloud's actually probably more secure than your IT closet. But, that, that's right. <laughs> uh, but that was, yeah that that's really changed. I think and you know I think that remote mm. work has really uh, opened uh, more and more firms to be open to to cloud technology, which opens the door to some of our you know some of our our products. Um, that are that are cloud-based. You know, just think, you know, think about the example of the lawyer uploading a a contract. Right, that's something that would have been a lot harder to sell pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and we're seeing more acceptance of that. Still, want to understand our data and our privacy you know, policies really intimately, mm-hmm. and we're, we're we're very transparent about that. But but there's more openness. I, I also think the other thing you've seen is in the past few years, some of this is pre-pandemic, there's been more and more of what I, what I call um, innovation labs that have popped up in law firms that look to leverage both internal and external sources and create, you know, create solutions. Uh, and they, 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 they come up with some, some pretty neat tools out of these organizations, you know. And, um, you know, what, the way we're responding to that is, we're we're looking at things like APIs Absolutely. outside of our product to be able to deliver core data sets to them, so that as they build mm-hmm. applications, our data can help to feed that. So, for example, we've got an API for our our, our feed of those billion dockets I was talking about. Um, you know, we're not going to have an API you can call for that. For example, um, I think tax you know tax departments. I think we're we're always pretty you know pretty tech friendly. And I, I think the the pandemic probably just only escalated it. I think the difference with taxes, you know, uh, it, it's sort of the frequency of tax law and regulation changes. Um, tax professionals have always had to be very kind of quick to adapt to. Okay, well, this whole tax law change, this provision change, now I have to update all my calculations, and I have to update all my back end. And I, so they've always been pretty open. I, I feel like to um, to technology and understand the impact. Um, hmm. That, that's really interesting, and um, yeah, that's it's interesting. These are not industries that I think of as as uh, digitally friendly, so it's uh, it's sort of fascinating to hear you say that. So you mentioned a couple of uh, of really excellent examples of where you're using um, you know artificial intelligence or more more specifically machine learning to do some some tasks, you know, with the oversight of humans. 
Um, but I'm, I'm kind of curious to push into some some of the struggles you've had adopting those technologies. I've, I've certainly seen them abused myself. Um, so I'm just kind of just curious to know some some examples where that where it's been a struggle. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, actually, I think the successes and the struggles are kind of driven by the same thing. I mean, <laughs> I, I think there's this perception that AI is a silver bullet for all issues, <laughs> are all problems, and you know, when reality, it's a you know, it's a way to automate tasks at scale. At scale, you know, and I and machine learning is like I said earlier, exactly what what it says on the tin. It's you know, it's a machine learning, and someone's got to teach it. Right. And I think when you don't go into a project with that perspective. Um, that that's where you can you can run into struggles mm-hmm. and just sort of thinking you know the machine's going to fix all problems, you know I think the the successes where we've had the most success has been when we've been able, able to leverage that in house expertise mm. to help the engineers as they go through the process of building the algorithms or training the machine. You know, so when we've had had that that expert sitting there, you know, alongside the engineer. Um, who's building it? We come out with some really cool stuff, you know. So those um, the, the example I gave you earlier of the you know writing uh, writing some stories or the first draft of stories mm-hmm. with the machine, mm-hmm. you know, having the the historical training set of data that was helpful, mm-hmm. but and having a you know a good reporter and a good editor sit there and look at every you know every single variation that came up and say, okay, well this worked, but this didn't work. This sounds right. This doesn't sound right. Hmm. Uh, we just kind of end up with a much better product. I, I think where you get the struggles is when um, you don't have the right expectations about where the technology is going to be useful, hmm. and you know people aren't aligned on what the outcomes are. You know, can or can or should be. I also think the other point I'd make is that, you know you have to have data that's organized. And and managed in a way that you might not might not if you weren't using AI or ML against it. So I think we've had to spend a lot more time investing in our data sets, you know, ahead of these projects. And you know, I think where we've had struggles is when we didn't put that investment in or didn't put enough investment in. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of have to go back to the drawing board mm-hmm. again. Yeah, absolutely. It's it, it's great to hear this from someone in in your role because how many times I'm I'm either joining Bernie or, or someone else in our client services team trying to explain what it takes to take advantage of the power of AI or ML. And a lot of it is organizing data, having a plan around what is quality going to look like, how are we going to assess what success is, which comes back to the, that expectation setting. Um, you know, the machine doesn't teach itself. Uh, it's pretty, it's actually not that intelligent, <laughs> despite the uh, the sci-fi aspect of this. You really do just teach it to see patterns and reproduce them. But nevertheless, really powerful technology if done right. But uh, but there's a lot of human investment to get get that value out of it. So, which I yeah. think is is something that you you seem to have a rich understanding of. All right, so um, I th- uh, I think we kind of drawing to the end here. We have a, a fun round of speed questions we like to ask. Uh, These are going to be the hardest ones we ask you, Josh. That's right, and no. we want you to answer completely off the cuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'll get us started with. With the first one, uh, so Bloomberg is famous for its its terminals and giving access um, uh, users access to to multiple simultaneous streams of data. That is that that's sort of the image that people often have of Bloomberg. Uh, so curious, how many screens do you have on your desk right now? I've got the classic Bloomberg setup of two screens. Two screens. Uh, <laughs> the, the Bloomberg branded monitors. Are, are they uh, so are they curved? I'm curious. No, no, they're not curved. <laughs> they're um, but they're they're on an arm, so I can. 
you know, tilt their, tilt their angle if that counts as curve. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Josh, I hate to do this to you, but my question is, Chelsea Football Club is playing a friendly versus DC United at Audi Field, and Garth Brooks is playing at Capital One Arena on the same night, same time, you can't see both. Which event are you going to? So I'm a uh, I am a sports fanatic and I and I love live sports. So that would, it's not even a moment of hesitation. I'd be at the uh, I'd be at the match. Fantastic. All right. So uh, so Josh, um, you were on the varsity swim team at Amherst. Uh, that's actually uh, we we met playing water polo there. If Michael Phelps were to spot you 15 meters in a 50 meter freestyle sprint, which one of you wins? So Im- important qualifying question is this right now today or is this back in the 1990s uh i'll give you a sporting chance let's do the 1990s <laughs> okay well so i th- i think if uh 15 meters and maybe if he also spotted me uh i get to be off the blocks and he had to push i think it's a competitive race that's probably I, mean, I, I i was lucky enough i've gotten to see him swim a couple of times i mean i i lived in london in the 2012 olympics and got to see him there and i I went out to the uh, trials in uh, Olympic trials in Omaha in 2016, and I mean the guy's an incredible athlete. Um, I'll, I'll tell you that right now. If I got in the pool with him now, though, it would it would be a sorry sight. <laughs> <laughs> he moves through the water differently than the rest of us. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit more of a serious question. So you started as an intern at Bloomberg and are now the CEO at Bloomberg Industry Group. What advice would you have for anyone starting out their career today, even as an intern? So I think, um, you know, thinking back on my internship, you know, whether you're an intern or a, a new hire at an organization, I, I think it's, you take advantage of everything the company offers you, you know, particularly if it's a pretty structured internship program. Hmm. Um, I, I think sometimes people, you know, either get tied up in their day-to-day work or they, you know, they're, they're worried about, you know, signing up for too many training classes or shadowing or whatever. I mean, I would, if I could go back, I would have signed up for every single training course that was offered to me. I would have taken, you know, asked every single person around me if I could shadow them and, and watch what they did and learn more about what they did. I, I'd also, you know, if, particularly for an intern, you know, someone who's thinking about maybe working for a company, you're obviously going to work in a department, you're going to work with a group of people. But I'd encourage you, you know, get to meet as many people as you can who do as many different things as you can. Because, you know, it really helps you figure out what you like and what you don't like and what you might want to do or what you want to dig into uh, a little bit more. So then don't, don't hide in a silo, I guess, is what I would, what I would encourage you to do. And, uh, you know, unless, unless, you know, by, by happenstance, I mean, you absolutely love the thing you're doing and you're like, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. That's cool. Um, but I think for most people, you know, in an internship, it's, it, it's meant to be an opportunity to learn about the company and learn about the industry and, um, just, just take it all in. You don't get that many opportunities in life to do that. So, um, don't let it go by the wayside. Well, I, I, I love too, that you sort of betray your own, uh, authentic curiosity, um, in your, in, in the Absolutely. way you've told us some of the stories here today. And, and I think that authentic curiosity is such a powerful, powerful tool. Um, well, Josh, I, I just want to say thank you. Uh, this has been really great. Uh, some really great insights, uh, from you here, um, and, uh, and an enjoyable conversation. So thank you so much. That's no, great to be here. Thanks for having me. This has been an episode of The Innovation Engine, a podcast from Three Pillar Global. If you have questions, comments, or guest suggestions, email us at info at threepillarglobal.com. At